Welcome to Home Health 360, a podcast presented by Aliacare. I'm your host, Jeff Howell, and this is the show about learning from the best in home health care from around the globe. Hi, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Home Health 360 podcast, where we interview home health professionals from across the globe. I'm your guest host, Erin Valier, SMB Sales Director for Aliacare Software, and today I'm joined by two professionals from MGA Home Care, Hani Feldman and Alex Kalaskas, to talk about private duty home care services in the pediatric space. Honey is the CCO, which stands for Chief Cooking Officer in her home, but at work, she is the Chief Clinical and Government Affairs Officer for MGA Home Care. She started her healthcare career as a nurse in the NICU at Children's National Medical Center in D.C. and then moved into the home healthcare space about 15 years ago. She served in a variety of roles from clinical director to clinical educator to working with the CEO on a process improvement team to government affairs and public policy. Wow, that's a lot. Currently, Honey advocates for the medically fragile population who receive care in the home. She's obsessed with making a case for home care and shouts from the rooftops that this is the highest quality, lowest cost setting to deliver care. I agree with you. So welcome to the show, Honey. Thanks. Can't wait to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And Alex, Alex has been with MGA Home Care for approximately a year on the government affairs team and recently moved into the chief compliance officer role. She's a licensed healthcare attorney who began her career representing California Medicaid clients who had been denied services. After law school, she moved home to Colorado to work for the governor's office of legal counsel and then the Colorado's Medicaid agency, that's HCPF. Um, She managed the home, community, and maternal health benefits section for about six years. At MGA, she plans to use her expertise to support the organization's caregivers in delivering the best care possible to the medically fragile children they serve. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So excited. Well, you ladies both have a really impressive resume, and I can't think of anybody else I'd rather talk to about what's going on in the pediatric space today. Um, So I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I'm curious, um, pediatrics is not for everybody. Uh, these kiddos are like really fragile, and at least in my experience, it's like they're good, they're good, they're good, and then they're really not good. So it kind of frightens a good percentage of people away from that niche. So I'm curious about you guys. What drew you to the pediatric space? And can you share that Cliff Notes version with our audience today before we just dive in? Sure. Honey, should I start? Sure. I think you you covered it a little bit, and, and I apologize. I talk with my hands, so it's sometimes distracting on Zoom calls, but I'm sure on a podcast. Um, but you covered a bit of my my what pushed me into pediatrics in that little bio. I um, started getting interested in health law broadly in law school, um, which you know that you really kind of got to pick an area of law pretty quickly and. Um, the health law clinic, the elder and health law clinic, to be specific, was an area of interest of mine. I had um, a supervising attorney who I really bonded with, um, and and she kind of 
gave me that first experience with working with clients um, in the clinic, which was a part of law school that you don't really see in the in the day to day class grind. So I kind of fell in love with just the healthcare um, space and topic because of her and because of that that clinic ex- experience. Um, and then after that, I was desperate to get home to Colorado and um, ended up after uh, you know a couple different places at the Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing which is HICPUF is the, the uh, acronym here in Colorado, um, where I, I started out managing the home health benefit uh, and ended up uh, supervising or managing a unit that oversaw like 15 fee-for-service Medicaid benefits, most of them um, very pediatric, heavy and specific. So spending six years kind of running the programs there and how pediatric heavy they were kind of kept me in the space and kept me um, motivated and excited to continue doing that hard work. And then um, I, you know, was introduced to Hani and Brad, our, our CEO at MGA, and just kind of, I tell the story that it was kind of the cosmic push in the back to kind of move over to to the private sector and to MGA, who's a, a great um, pediatric healthcare provider. So that's kind of how I've landed and stayed here. Nice. That's a wonderful little journey. And back to Colorado, which I don't blame you. (laughs) Not one bit. How about you, honey? How did you land here? Well, I, uh, as you had mentioned, I started as a NICU nurse. So Mm. that uh, I would say you'd think that that would be this sort of natural transition into uh, the pediatric home care space. But uh, I can't really say that I knew much about home care. Uh, at all when I was a NICU nurse. And if it wasn't, you know, for a recruiter that, you know, really was very persistent in getting me to come into an interview, um, I don't know that I would have known so much about home care. Um, our, you know, I specialized in a, a micro preemie team. So these were like 23 and 24 weekers born, you know, months before they were supposed to. It was... Oh, wow. Uh, very adrenaline filled and high pay. It was a high paced environment. And, um, you know, most of those kids, you know, so many of those kids don't make it. I mean, there's tremendous advances in, you know, medical technology, which, you know, a lot can now, but often those kids, when they go home, if they, you know, if they make it through their journey in the NICU and they go home, they typically need home care services, but I wasn't aware of that. I mean, we would, you know, get the get the memo from the charge nurse that morning, so-and-so is going home today. And we'd, you know, go to the bay and kind of see them off and, you know, wave to them in their car seat as their parents were taking them home, often with on a ventilator and, and with equipment, but didn't really think about how do these families do it? And like I said, you know, it was recruited to a home care, didn't think that I would like it, stayed on PRN at the hospital for a bit, but my first visit with a patient in the home, and I'm going to try not to cry here, but I have told the story a bunch. You walk into a home and it looks like a regular home, like you and I would have, and you go upstairs and I walked into this patient room, little boy, and, you know, I remember the, the walls were blue, beautiful furniture, and you look over at the crib, and there's this, you know, beautiful little boy hooked up, you know, with a trach, hooked up to a ventilator, a feeding tube, 
um, suction machine on, you know, in the crib, tons of medications. And it's just, it's just, it was just striking to me. And I was able to, you know, look around, see the parents, see the siblings, the healthy siblings that were there. And I can't say that it hit me at that moment, but certainly not, didn't take me long before I said, what we do in the home enables this little boy to be at home with his parents and with his siblings. And it's not a normal life and it is not an easy life, but you know, what we do is really, it, it is life-changing for these families. So I would say, you know, became very passionate about what we did and, you know, really switched fully, left the hospital, switched, you know, to home care as a clinical director, did a bunch of jobs, like you had mentioned, a lot, a lot of different great roles. Um, that switch to government affairs is a, was a big, <laughs> huge switch. And uh, I'll, I'll just kind of be, um, vulnerable and tell my, you know, complete um, and utter ignorance towards the government affairs. I did not know what that was, but our CEO at that time, you know, Brad Bennett, he he kept telling me, he says, I need you in government affairs. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I mean, literally had no idea. I, you know, I was a nurse. <laughs> I, I knew how to start an IV and, and do a great assessment and chart. I did not know what government affairs was. And I would like, say to my husband, I said, you know, people in the government have affairs. <laughs> like that was, <laughs> that was the extent of my knowledge. And, and, you know, finally, I just got the courage, you know, the CEO tells you he needs you somewhere, you just say, okay, <laughs> you know, okay, sure, I'll, I'll do that. But, you know, not really knowing. And I finally said to him, I said, Brad, I'm not really sure I'm your gal for this. <laughs> I said, I really don't have any experience. And, he says, no, no, I'm going to, you know, I just hired somebody, you know, government affairs professional, 20 years in the industry. He's going to teach you everything. But he said, at the end of the day, when we, when we want to speak to policymakers and legislators about our patients, I want that person speaking to be a nurse because you've been there and you've been in the homes and you've done this. So it was a uh, Government affairs is not common sense for, you know, for those of the listeners that, you know, are involved in advocacy, you know, they know it's, you know, it's a regulated field. It's it's not like it's just, uh, it isn't common sense, but um, I learned, um, you know, the rules, the ethics surrounding actual lobbying. Um, and I feel that with the, you know, you know, the great teams that I've worked with, coalition partners, with other providers in the industry, We've made a lot of uh, great strides, so <laughs> it's it's been a it's been a fun journey, and I'm thrilled to be at MGA. I'm thrilled to have a partnership with Alex and her role as chief compliance officer, but her background as regulator. Um, yeah. You know, for me, I'm the you know the passionate nurse that wants to change the world, and Alex is more of the you know of the balanced. Well, you know, these are the rules, and these are the you know the, these are the obstacles we have to face. So it's it's. We, we've had a lot of fun so far, and uh, we're excited to just continue to, to you know, see a lot of change, good change, hopefully. <laughs> that's awesome. It sounds like I have the dream team, though, on the line today, so that's super exciting. And the CEO, he uh, had some wisdom there. Um, who better to, to advocate for the industry than somebody who's been in it and knows it inside and out and can share that passion because it, it is a special thing that you guys do. It's, it's hard. I can't, I don't have a special needs child, but I just, I can't imagine 
how difficult or nearly impossible it would be to to care for someone without the proper team. And that proper team needs to be integrated into the home. And I know that um, MGA Home Care is a provider of private duty nursing services and also some therapy, correct? Like PTOTSD in the home. So share with our listeners, what exactly do these services entail? And can you tell me a little bit about the types of patients that you guys care for? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, uh, so private duty nursing, I would say it's, it's definitely a misnomer. Uh, I had you know, many meetings with different legislators that say, wait, what do you do? Private duty nursing? Um, is that like private pay for rich people? I mean, I've literally had those comments. Uh, it doesn't really describe the care that we provide. Um, we look at it as hospital at home type of care. Uh, Hospital at home is actually talked about these days a lot as a new concept. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, we kind of get frustrated. We say we've been doing this type of care for forever. Um, Not forever, but uh, since Katie Beckett's parents brought her home from the hospital. And uh, I don't know if you know about Katie Beckett, but she was a three-year-old girl who was stuck in the hospital because Medicaid wouldn't pay for her care. And just like the patients that MGA cares for, she was ventilator dependent, uh, but then in 82, President Reagan, with um, bipartisan legislation passed uh, by Congress, created this Medicaid waiver that allowed for this type of care in the home. And really, the cost of keeping Katie Beckett at home was a fraction of what it was to keep her an institution. Um, it's typically a Medicaid benefit. And the, you know, the regular employee-sponsored um plans or commercial insurances typically don't offer this type of care. There are exceptions, but typically not. Um, so our patients are um, usually technology dependent, as like in my example of, you know, before that first patient I saw requiring a trach to breathe, a feeding tube, um, or an IV for nutrition, a lot of medications uh, to manage this, you know, their conditions that they have. Um, they have serious medical complications, uh, genetic conditions that are not expected to improve. Uh, the exception are our kids from the NICU who were the preemies. Uh, they had a lot of complications. So like I had you know, shared earlier, they came home with these, this you know, technology dependency. Um, but we love watching them grow up and grow out of needing our services and we celebrate their graduation from home care, and that is our favorite type of business to lose. Um, the other types of patients we serve are those needing um, intermittent type of skilled nursing services. So, you know, often not, you know, they don't need the hourly type of care, the eight or 12 hour shifts that we're providing for those technology dependent patients, but um, they need certain skilled nursing services. So we'll send an RN to a home Uh, to do those visits, you know, one, two, three times a week, whatever it is. Uh, And as you had mentioned, we provide OT, PT, and speech um, for pediatric population. And we're about to start a behavioral health service line. So lots of uh, great things we're doing in that space. That's exciting. So you, yeah, you've got a, a, like the whole gamut, right? So from the medically fragile that require some intense care to the ones that just require a little bit of help a few times a week. And you said something that maybe 
Alex can expand on that most of your most of the benefits in this in the pediatric space come from Medicaid and rather than like private insurance. Why is that, Alex? Like, why why doesn't private insurance get on board here? Like, in well, yeah, for, I mean, it's it's a very complex uh, question and answer actually with a lot of his, historical um, components. But I mean, I would say the the long and short of it is um, Medicaid is the only payer that will provide, you know, continuous or pay for continuous one-to-one nursing at that hospital, hospital at home level of care. Um, I think that's because of kind of the, the history of private duty nursing and how it developed as, as a, a benefit. It's an optional benefit. So not all state Medicaid programs have to cover it. States can elect to cover it or not. Um, most do because it's a um, cost-effective uh, service delivery model as, and keeps kids out of institutions. Um, but I think, you know, the private pay space hasn't picked up on it largely, I would say, because Medicaid has been so robust in this service model um, in its reimbursement structure for so long that they don't really feel the need to, to kind of dabble there. They can pick up sort of the acute and the intermittent side um, but they really leave it to Medicaid to cover the, the private duty nursing one-to-one continuous, like, high level of care. That's interesting. I wonder if that that trend will continue as we continue to focus more about care in the home. And I know in conversations that we've had, you know, back and forth a little bit before this podcast, I've, I've heard you say, honey, that um, the quality metrics and regulations that you guys are held to in the pediatric space don't really mesh or they're more in alignment with adult home health. And even though on the surface level, well, what you've described to me sounds a little bit like adult home health. You've either got some people who are medically fragile, they require a lot of attention, or you've got the intermittent like three times a week wound care chain, you know, or whatever. So on the surface level, it, it kind of appears like they're similar. But what you were telling me is that the regulations and the requirements and documentation that are applied to you guys are, are just not appropriate. So I'm wondering if you both can describe to the listeners how pediatric home care differs from elder care in the home and how do you believe the quality metrics and regulations, how do you believe those should be tweaked so that you guys can operate more efficiently and more effectively for your clients? Sure. I, I can kind of cover the first part of that question. And then I think Hani's best to speak to our kind of work on how we're trying to tweak them and make them more appropriate to pediatrics. But um, to, to start out, I mean, skilled care in the home was basically established um, as a benefit and the regulations and the quality metrics that follow with establishing that benefit um, were all designed for adults, uh, the adult population. So 65 and older. Um, and as payers kind of started expanding the coverage to include, to include pediatrics in, in the home health space because of cases like the Katie Beckett um, case that Honey mentioned, as well as the Olmstead, um, Olmstead and the ADA, different, you know, whether it's litigation or acts of Congress or whatever it was that kind of opened the doors for these services to children, um, the combination of them. Really what happened was the existing regulations and the uh, structure, the billing structure, pretty much everything, quality measures, 
as they existed for adults, were just kind of pulled over and applied to children. There wasn't a new development of a regulatory framework for children, even though these programs were expanded to allow them in. Um, and what that's basically meant is we're left with acuity assessments, for example, um, and other regulatory requirements that were created for adults um, that don't really match the pediatric space or the needs of pediatric clients, as you described, Darren. So um, I think two, I always give these two examples because um, they're clear and kind of show show what, what the issue is. But one is the OASIS tool. So I think most listeners would be familiar with the, uh, the OASIS, the um, out, Outcome and Information Assessment Set, uh, as that eligibility tool, that gateway functional needs assessment tool performed for Medicare home health patients. Um, and that needs assessment tool goes into questions like, you know, did the client read the newspaper today or this week? Is the client homebound or are they able to independently leave their residence without significant assistance? Kind of questions like that. Um, and those questions obviously answer a functional needs um, question for adults. So if, so, so if an adult can't read the newspaper and they answer no, or they do need, you know, they're unable to leave their house without assistance and they're homebound, then we know a bit more about that person's needs for skilled care in the home. Um, but obviously those questions aren't applicable to children. Children can't read the newspaper and they leave the home all the time with the assistance of their parents. So that's just kind of, that, that is one example of there's this federal acuity tool for the home health benefit, but it's really only applicable to adults. Um, and in the, in the vacuum then for, for the pediatric side, states have kind of been left to establish their own assessment criteria for the home health benefit and the private duty nursing benefit as it applies to children, um, which has kind of led to like a patchwork effect. And then I think another example um, is the 60-day recertification this is this is one that kind of highlights the regulatory framework. So I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with the the 60 day research. All you know, Medicare certified home health agencies have to comply with the conditions of participation. One of them is that we complete a recertification uh, of the client every 60 days, which essentially means we're reaching out to their ordering the ordering physician or the non-physician practitioner to have them review the plan of care and the case file and kind of say, yes, this person is still homebound or this person is still, you know, needing X, Y, and Z services as you have them laid out. Um, and that was really, that 60-day cadence really is built on and tracks the 60-day episodic care model of Medicare's home health benefit. Um, so, we have to comply with that. We have to do that for our pediatric patients, even though, um, and Hani can speak much more eloquently to, to the clinical component of this, but we kind of know in the pediatric long-term long care home space that these, that these children aren't experiencing a lot of differences in their care plan um, in a 60-day episode. So that we know when they come to us that they're probably going to be on services for a while um, and, and reviewing their care plan every 60 days isn't leading to any better outcomes. It's kind of just causing us to have this administrative to, to comply with this administrative burden, even though it's not, you know, directly tied to something that's providing, leading us to provide better quality care. So those are kind of two examples of how 
Uh, I don't know. Honey, do you want to exp- expand on that? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I'll just, Alex and I could say it eloquently. I, I kind of get irritated because I've been complaining about this in a very constructive way and also non-constructive way for, for a bunch of years. Um, that 60-day reassessment, you know, it's an RN has to go out to a home and do this assessment and come back you know, go, go log on, you know, to the, into the EHR, fill out the assessment, um, create a new care plan, send that to the prescribing practitioner. We have to wait for the prescribing practitioner to sign. There are rules around, you know, how many, in some states, there are rules around how many days it needs to be signed by in order for, you know, the, 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 the plan of care to be effective. And it is a, it's paperwork. We don't mm-hmm. gain, you know, Alex said this, right? But it's just, I can't tell you all of the wasted time on this particular effort that could be best spent, better spent on actual care coordination, communicating with the payer, communicating with other, you know, social support services. And yet we have to go through this process every 60 days. We are not reimbursed any bit extra for that process. So the sending of the RN out to the home and all of the administrative burdens that are associated with that. And it is just, you know, it, it, when we look at what's kind of dragging us down and we, and we look at burdensome regulations. I mean, this is, this is the example. And I've had this conversation, as I said, with legislators, with Medicaid directors, and I have never once had anybody say, I disagree with you. I mean, I've had Medicaid directors say, I wish we could switch this. This makes no sense. It, this is the that's this is the best example of square peg, you know, trying to jam it into a round hole. Um, so anyway, we're 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 working. We're trying to work with the different states to implement these, you know, changes in regulations, quality metrics to address the pediatric population, and you know, we're also trying to be engaged in a federal initiative which will create a pediatric portion of the conditions of participation, which governs, you know, governs the care that, that we talked about. And, and if we could be successful in that, these um, we would eliminate things like the 60 day research, which, you know, doesn't make sense. Um, I just want to mention one other, um, you know, advocacy effort that uh, we are a part of, um, there's uh, this ACE Kids Act, which is a bipartisan piece of legislation passed in 2019 and with a goal uh, to improve care for children uh, that are medically complex and those children who rely on Medicaid for their health care coverage. And under this ACE Kids Act, state Medicaid agencies are required to develop a set of quality metrics for children um, that will ultimately get approved by CMS. And we're really trying to get a seat at that table to um, be a part of that, to, to, you know, help craft these quality metrics because, um, you know, children's hospitals absolutely are just, you know, such experts in, in, you know, knowing, you know, what is quality for these medically complex children, but, you know, home care providers need to be a part of that conversation as well, because we're, you know, we're such a huge part of, you know, care for the children in the community. Absolutely. And MGA is sort of a a force to be reckoned with, and they have a really good team of people who are passionate about advocating. So I'm curious, is there a way for anybody listening that might be um, involved in, with a pediatric agency? Like, 
it seems like we need to band together on this initiative and have a really loud and unified voice if we're going to make some changes. Is there a way for folks to get involved with you or with the initiatives that you're involved with? Yeah. I mean, Alex, do you want to speak, as, you know, in, from the well, mind of a regulator or, <laughs> you know, I could definitely also sure. speak after. Well, I, you know, um, so there's a lot to tackle with the regulatory framework kind of being designed for adults and how do we, I, it's federal. I mean, I think the, the answer for some of the COP stuff and that, and that kind of level is obviously we need some federal legislation. We got to bend the ear of, of Congress to say this was established back when it's a plot. It was designed for this population. Like look at the ways in which it doesn't make sense now. Um, and here's some alternative ones that we'd like. So I think, um, I don't know that we, we have a specific, like we are working with our lobbyists to kind of, you know, craft one pagers and get all sorts of um, historical information in, in place so that we can have this concept land because it is a nuanced, you know, there's a lot to take in the history of Medicare and Medicaid and then how it doesn't work for children in our current space. But um I, I think other than that, reaching out to your representative, you know, if you're a family member and if you're a provider, I think some of these coalitions that we've been a part of have been super helpful and just kind of having providers understand the regulatory landscape, share with each other what's creating a pain point and then, you know, getting getting kind of traction with initiatives to change things in a in a cohesive way. So. Yeah, that's basically how we've made our most headway so far. Yeah, and we've been doing as far as coalitions, we um, are part of PDN coalition, which is, you know, one of the, you know, committees of Home Care Association of America led by uh, Executive Director Vicki Hoke. She's been um, hugely, uh, she's also a huge uh, passionate advocate for home care and has, um, you know, enabled uh, PDN providers to work together on, um, you know, just advocating for our medically fragile population. So our work, um, you know, as part of that coalition has been terrific. But yeah, we're, um, I, I love receiving emails and phone calls from, you know, from from providers and from families who, you know, want to make a difference, want to make some noise in social media. I mean, because, you know, as Alex said, um, you know, for a couple of years, I worked um, trying to advocate um, through CMS and HHS. It's 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 hard to to gain any traction there. So it would need to be a piece of legislation that we could get passed to make those changes. Yeah, sounds like an uphill battle. But if there's some outlets that people can get in, involved in, coalition started the, the like the state agency, like the home care associations or whatever to get involved. Um, definitely some homework for people listening to this podcast. Um, well, you guys do a lot for the industry and it's it's really cool. And I know that you offer some really interesting service pr- like programs for your your patients. Um and I think that there's at least one of them for sure that, that our listeners would benefit from hearing about. Um, can you describe the relative caregiver program concept and what initiatives you guys are involved in at MGA? Sure. So I, I, I kind of take this question sometimes by default because when I was at 
the Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing. Colorado is one of the states that that has really been had this program up and running or this allowance of relative caregivers um, for quite some time. So kind of leading, I would say, the country, at least in the Medicaid space on that front. Um, but generally, the, the relative caregiver concept um, is it's, it's just a service delivery model. It's kind of uh, divided into two steps in my mind. But, you know, essentially, it's we are acknowledging that parents are already providing some level of skilled care in the home. Um, to Hani's point earlier, you know, when clients are discharged, when children are discharged from the hospital, the parents are given instructions on how to care for their vent and their trach and how to do a lot of the skilled care um, that requires some significant, some significant training and practice. They're, they're required to do that on their own. So we already know that they're doing it, that they're being trained to, and they're, they're shouldering this responsibility. So the model is let's allow them to become, let's advocate to allow them to be licensed as um, certified nurse aides or licensed health aides, whatever the license is in the applicable state, to get them that um, regulated, cohesive training, make sure that they're undergoing all the same trainings that a certified nurse aide coming in to provide the care um, would. And then once they're licensed, trained, certified, uh, and kind of supervised, overseen by those regulations, um, the second part of it is allow uh, changing whatever reimbursement rules there are or working with a payer, um, a private payer, to allow those parents who are now licensed um, caregivers to be reimbursed the regular certified nurse aid rate that they would pay a non-relative to provide. So that's kind of, that's kind of the concept in a nutshell. And it, it's a little bit uh, that would encompass, I guess, both consumer directed models and um, non. So Colorado's is actually a fee for service model um, that, you know, it's just their home health benefit and they pay CNAs to provide skilled care, there's no prohibition from that CNA being a parent. And that's kind of how Colorado left it. So um, that, that's been one option. There's consumer directed options. There's a lot of different ways in which this plays out depending on the regulatory framework or the payer or um, what's kind of happening in the state. But that's, that's, that's one, one kind of fee-for-service model is where we've, I would say, got, gotten our feet wet is um, we have a heavy footprint in Colorado. A lot of our families, we have, we have a lot of relative caregivers, relative CNAs here. Uh, and then in Arizona, we ran some legislation a couple of years ago and then some cleanup regis- legislation recently to get a similar program kicked off there, which is hopefully going to be actually, you know, walking here with legs soon. Um, they received approval from CMS and we're kind of working with the, the state Medicaid agency and licensure down there to get, to get this off the ground. That's really cool. And like speaking from like a consumer standpoint, I, um, I had an employee who actually took advantage of this particular program that you're describing. Um, she, there would be no other way that she would have been able to like have care given to her kid or even like function as a single mom if she didn't have the opportunity to have these funds, you know, for providing that care and then upskill to take care of her medically fragile child. So it's a, it's a really cool program, but you made a couple comments that makes me believe that this may not be 
something that is um, universally accepted across the state. So does it exist everywhere? And if not, where can people find out about it? Or how can agencies get involved? Like, talk to me about this program. It seems yeah, it seems like a good one for the industry. Sure. I know it's been great for, you know, it's it's got a lot of benefits. It basically it gets parent it gets parents acknowledged for doing care that's above and beyond, way above and beyond what we what we consider normal parental duties. I mean, these the, these types of tasks um, are something that payers would be paying a licensed person to conduct if it wasn't being performed by that parent. So um, acknowledging that parent's capabilities, train them and kind of have that already existing discipline of provider be able to take some of the the brunt of, you know, the care that we need delivered in this nursing shortage is a great um, service delivery model and a great cost savings and a safe way to to kind of get the right level of care in the home um, when when we're in the middle of a public health crisis, especially. But yes, not a lot of states, you know, have something fully up and running. We have um, the program in Arizona is is almost there in Colorado. Um, And then we have a bill going forward in Florida right now. Um, there's a pilot program in Missouri, there's legislation in Maine. So we're really gaining traction nationally, um, mostly by bills, mostly by legislative efforts, but there's been some cases, um, you know, in Virginia, their state Medicaid, uh, agency kind of undertook it themselves, I believe to study this to kind of a feasibility study and see what it would look like. So, um, depending on the state, there might be something already underway or not, but we're definitely, we're definitely doing our best to kind of bring this to the states that MGA is already providing care in and just to the country at large. So, um, we're super passionate about it. That's really exciting. And Hani being a nurse, I don't know if you are, know, like, if, if there is additional benefit, I'm assuming there would be of having like a family caregiver versus a stranger caregiver for a specially fragile child. Is there any data like that that you guys have collected to support this? There, there is, I would say there is um, unsubstantiated data currently floating around in the industry that there is a lower um, hospitalization rate for kids receiving services through a relative caregiver. Um, but it's, you know, it's not published. It's not peer reviewed or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, I would say that it is a really tough <laughs> labor market right now in healthcare, mm-hmm. and it's really tough getting nurses. And mm-hmm. it is when a relative caregiver is providing that care, they don't call off, (laughs) they show up to work. (laughs) And you don't have the same kind of struggles with um, client satisfaction that you do sometimes when a stranger comes into the home. Um, We've seen when a child receives, you know, care that's, you know, typically delivered through, you know, an RN or LPN in combination with relative caregivers kind of filling in those tough to staff hours. It is, it, it, it really, really is, is, is such a great model of, um, you know, of care and, um, good outcomes. And like I mentioned, you know, patient satisfaction, it just, it just works. 
And um, it's uh, it's really a good tool in the toolbox. It's not, um, you know, in conversations that we've had, it's not like we're saying we want to get rid of private duty nursing. No, not at all. <laughs> There's a place for that. Not every family, um, not every patient, it's not going to work, you know, for every single patient to have either all of their care delivered through relative caregiver or even some. You know, it's mm-hmm. not everybody's uh, not everybody's appropriate for that type of service. So um, when it can be used in conjunction, uh, you know, again, one of these tools in a toolbox, you can have a complete full set of tools to provide care, to keep kids at home safely and, um, you know, out of the hospitals. It's just a win-win. Yeah, it seems like it would be solve a whole lot of issues, like lessen the the shortage of nurses for sure, which you brings me to a question that I want to ask you, but gosh, time has flown by. I, I only have time for one quick more question. Um, maybe one and a half. Uh, since you, you brought up the nursing shortage yourself, I am imagining that pediatrics has been Im- impacted just with the same severity as personal care in um, adult, you know, an elderly home health. Uh, do you, what have you been doing? Uh, there's actually, there's one and a half questions. What have you guys been doing to combat that? Do you have any like good ideas for people who are also experiencing that same pain that you're willing to share? And um, I'm sure that folks listening to this podcast will be interested in getting involved in some of these advocacy um, uh, programs or things that you've got going on. And I, I want you to tell them how to get in touch with you before we say goodbye. I'll say that, you know, like I had mentioned in the beginning, I did not know about home care. And so when I said, when I, I, I had a conversation once with the governor and um, he, he, he basically, when I started to give him the quick pitch of what home care was, he said, oh, yeah, I, I know what it is. Or I know what private duty nursing services, you know, and I was very respectful, but I wanted to say, no, you don't. I didn't even know what it was. And I worked in the NICU. So um, we have to do a better job at educating nursing students about an actual career in home care. Uh, there's about a quarter of a semester that's devoted. I have a daughter who's in nursing school right now. And, you know, I looked at I'm like obsessed with looking at her curriculum and it's like a quarter of a semester, if maybe even an eighth. And it's like barely touches on it. So we have to do a better job at educating nursing students. Home care is a viable option. People want to receive care in the home. Um, a pandemic has certainly shifted um, that move towards receiving care at home. It's a real option. It's fulfilling. It's incredible. We have to figure out a way to 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 introduce home care as an option earlier, and you know, to to th- that can possibly help with the the workforce. Um, and we just need to be more creative, and not even more creative. We have to ensure that. Licensed professionals are working to the top of their license. Um, And so just like we talked about the relative caregiver program, we've got to start making some, you know, real tough decisions, but clinically sound decisions on delegating care, um, utilizing CNAs and home health aides, you know, even outside of a relative caregiver situation, but looking to to delegate care. And um, because that workforce is so limited 
And, and we're just going to have to use technology and telehealth in ways that hasn't been done before and, right. and come up with, with new models of care. And, you know, at MGA, where, you know, we talk to payers about that. We talk to policymakers about that. We're trying to be creative because we're limited. And so we have to, we have to, you know, do the best um, with what we have right now. And there's so much to unpack in that answer that you gave. Maybe we need to do like, you know, a take two on this or part two on this. <laughs> Alex, do you have anything you want to add here? No, I'd love to do a take two. Um, now that I've done a take one, I'm like already ready for my next podcast. But um, I, I think Hani mentioned it earlier, but in terms of getting involved, it's, it is kind of a nebulous, like how do you get in there as a parent um, or as a provider? But I think on the provider side, it's a lot easier to kind of band together. We're all providing services together and we speak, but on the parent front, if there's any family listeners, I would say, you know, those, those get involved with your local community, the other parents. Um, I know there's tons of forums for that, um, social media and otherwise, but get vocal, get loud because you are the best advocate for your care. And that means coverage. That means getting rid of these administrative burdens, whatever it is that's impeding barriers to bedside as, as Hani says. Um, but yeah, I think when parents get loud and families get involved, payers listen and regulators listen and obviously providers listen. So I, I think that's the best way we can effectuate change. Awesome. So for the listeners, get involved uh, at with your state associations, with any of these um, other entities that will advocate, but just be loud and don't stop talking because we got some work to do. Um, that's my key takeaway from this conversation. And uh, it's been it's been lovely. There's so much more I want to talk about. So possibly we'll have a, a part two to this. Um, but real quickly, um, how can people find you? Is is LinkedIn a good place or how you know, if they have any questions about how they can get involved with some of these initiatives you got going on. Yeah, definitely LinkedIn. That would be great. Um, MGAHomeCare.com. But yeah, LinkedIn and email or call. It's just, as I said before, I love to hear from families. I love to hear from providers. The more voices we have, as Alex said, the louder will be. We are we are going to move. We are going to make changes. We are making changes. We're seeing progress. We have a lot more to do. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure, ladies. Likewise. Thanks. It's been great. Thank you for having us. Home Health 360 is presented by Care. First off, I want to thank our amazing guests and listeners. To get more episodes, you can go to aliacare.com forward slash home health 360. That's spelled home health 360 or search Home Health 360 on any of your favorite podcasting platforms. The easiest way to stay up to date on our new shows is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a newsletter you can sign up for on aliacare.com forward slash homehealth360 to get alerts for new shows and more valuable content from Aliacare right into your inbox. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.